The 2023 Giro d'Italia takes a pause for breath this Monday after a hectic weekend of racing saw the Corsa Rosa burst into life. But where is this year's race taking us? To the predicted battle between Remco Evenepoel and Primoz Roglic? A four-way fight between a quartet of Grand Tour winners? Or something different, more freakish, a volatile, dramatic mountaintop cliffhanger of the kind that only the Giro d'Italia can summon up? Hello again and welcome to Radio Cycling, bringing you the key news stories within professional bike racing in partnership with Sigma Sports. Here's the news. Ineos take Giro to Remco as Thomas misses stage win. Roglic holds fast as Mountain Showdown looms. Quintana update. Is it the end of the road for Nairo? Vollering's power play blows away Van Vluten in Izulia. So that was the news when we recorded this podcast early on Sunday evening. But by late on Sunday evening, the news had changed. Remco Evenepoel pulled out of the Giro d'Italia after testing positive for COVID. Everything is now up for grabs. From a new road bike to a wardrobe refresh, Sigma Sports keeps you moving, whether you're a commuter, racer or social rider. At Sigma Sports, you get the products you want from the brands you love. With fast shipping, easy returns and industry-leading customer service, shop in-store or online at sigmasports.com. Hello again, my name's Jeremy Whittle and joining me is Peter Cossins, author of Butcher, Blacksmith, Acrobat, Sweep, also the names of his much-loved pet ferrets. Hello, Pete. Hello, Jeremy. And we are also blessed by the presence of Spanish-based podcast prodigy and recovering wedding crasher, Chris Marshall-Bell. Hello, Chris. Hello, Jeremy. I'm not quite as bad as I expected to be today. Oh, good. I'm very pleased for you. <laughs> so as the dust settles on Remco Evenepoel's win in Cesena in the longest individual time trial in the Grand Tour since the final time trial in the 2022 Tour de France, things are hotting up. Geraint Thomas, Primoz Roglic and Theo Gegenhardt, all recent Grand Tour winners, are within 50 seconds of the Belgian as the Giro enters a new phase. Falling behind a little on GC are Howell Maeda, Alexander Vlasov, Jay Vine, Hugh Carthy and Thibaut Pinot. Although with so many big climbs still to come, there is plenty of scope for them to bounce back. Past experience would suggest that this leading quartet and their teams will now set the agenda for the rest of the Giro. After the stage, I caught up with Matt White, Director of High Performance at Jayco Alula, who is one of the most experienced of team bosses, offered this assessment of where things stand on the Giro's first rest day. I think where we are situated after the, going into the first rest day, I think, um, especially with the, t- the rides from the two Ineos riders today, I think uh, it's going to be a lot more of a uh, battle than just between Roglic and Evenepoel. I think uh, it's painting a really good picture, exciting picture, because I think you can throw a blanket pretty much over the top ten, really. Um, we haven't seen any big, big mountains, but uh, it's certainly boding for an exciting second half of the race. Meanwhile, for Geraint Thomas, his Giro couldn't be going much better. Here he is after finishing second on the stage to Evenepoel. Yeah, obviously it's nice to uh, be getting better. Um, but to be so close to the win kind of hurts. I think it's my uh, fourth, second place in a TT in the Giro. After twice in 2012 and then in 17. And now here, so yeah. A few too many seconds for my liking, but yeah, it's good to be in it anyway. And uh, you know, myself and Teo, 
right up there is uh looks good for the next part of the race so what's he doing there is he is he making omelets pancakes or is they just put him back in his little cage i think i think he's Ineos have brought in a giant hamster wheel haven't they for for post post stage warm down is that not what it is Oh, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like they've lost the chef and he's having to make the omelettes as well. <laughs> it's Welsh cakes, Jeremy. Welsh, of course it is. It's celebratory Welsh cakes. <laughs> so, Chris, I'd say that Ineos Grenadiers probably have the strongest team in this Giro, but who do they back now, Teo or Thomas? I think, well, I think that is probably uh, a fair assessment. They do have the strongest team. I think this is something we've come to expect from Ineos in the last 10 years or so. Even in the last two, three years when they're, you know, they're standing as the dominant stage racing team has crumbled. Who do they back? I think they will let the road decide. It was interesting. I had a conversation with Steve Cummings, one of the, uh, the team's sports directors, maybe about four or five weeks ago in the Basque Country. And we were actually talking about the Tour and not the Giro. But he said to me, you know, the team's philosophy, the reason the team go to every Grand Tour now with two or three leaders is that they really believe that the road will decide and they much rather have two or three options on stage 14 than only have one option and then that one option fail quite dramatically. So I think it's not a case now that they're going to be sitting around the table tomorrow on the rest day and saying, Geraint, you've got a four-second lead over Teo, all our eggs are in your basket. It's a case of, you know, they will be backing them both. And I think by the end of this week, even though the Dolomites will decide this Giro. I think by the end of this week, we will probably have a clear favourite between uh, Geraint and Theo. What about you, Pete? What do you think? Do you think the roads will decide? It, it's interesting, Chris. I mean, I've been watching the the Giro, and uh, I was. I mean, we've been swapping messages during the week, and uh, the race really hasn't taken off yet. And it kind of in, intrigues me the Giro because everybody talks about it being the the best grand tour of the year and the greatest race and whatever and i don't necessarily agree with that i mean i think in terms of of action you probably for consistency of action you probably see more at the tour and at the vuelta because they they're they tend to throw in kind of key mountain stages earlier on things that are going to split the favorites a bit i kind of went went back into over the last 10 years and looked at um Looked at the points, sort of the decisive points in the in the three stage in the three Grand Tours, where where the race had actually been decided, where the where the, the uh, overall winner had actually taken the the jersey, and it's interesting because in the Giro, when you go back over the last ten years, there have been five occasions out of those ten where the race race winner has actually taken the jersey, that's taken the Maglia Rosa in the last three stages. That's only happened on five occasions and the other two Grand Tours combined. I mean, obviously, we all know, we all remember um, Tadej Pogacar taking it in the 2020 Tour. There have been three uh, three instances at the Vuelta where that's happened. But the Giro, it's much more, they, they kind of have this template, which they're really, really wedded to, of having the Dolomites and the, or the key stages in the Dolomites and the Alps in the last week. And everybody's biding their time until then. We kind of have these little flickers of action and you kind of think, I mean, p- people were saying after after Remco won the opening time trial so decisively that he would then go on and and he he kind of cruised to victory in the Giro. We're already seeing that's not going to happen. We saw in the time trial that he he only won that by a second. That wasn't a great win. I mean, even even yesterday he was saying that he was looking to kind of crush his rivals and gain big time on them in the race. That's not happened. And at the same time, Roglic, Thomas, Gagan Hart. 
even riders that are further down the top 10, Almeida, for instance, they're kind of bubbling along nicely. They're biding their time. And I just think this, I mean, obviously it's got a lot, a lot further to run, but we're not going to find out until halfway through the third week who's really going to be the strongest rider. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a race that always relies on a very kind of a classic format, doesn't it? it they do, they do, they are slightly adventurous from time to time. I mean, with the Grande Partenza, the, the, the opening weekend, they're a bit more adventurous with that. But it, as you say, it is quite formulaic in some senses, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, the, I mean, all the Grand Tours want want to maintain suspense until the end, and the Giro have obviously decided that like, this is the, the best way for them to do it. And I guess the, the thing is that the one thing that the riders all say about the Giro is the hardest of the of the Grand Tours as a race. The, the tours are the, the toughest race because of the pressure that's on it, because of the focus that's on it. But the Giro is the hardest one purely as a, as a competition, as a contest between the riders. And that's because they've got to, they, first of all, they've got to deal with the weather, which we've seen plenty of weather already in the opening week. Then when we get to this point now, and we've got more weather coming by the sound of it, then they've got to deal with the, the mountains kind of stepping up in terms of their difficulty until we get into the back end of the third week. They know that that is going to, that is going to create problems. I mean, I mean, I, I guess if you look back, one of the best examples of that would be the 2018 Giro, where Simon Yates dominated the first two and a half weeks of the of the race, winning three stages and taking a quite a strong, a, quite a good lead on o, over his rivals. And then Chris Froome came through, having struggled earlier in the race and and um, looked like he was kind of he'd lost his chance of, of winning the Giro. He came through on that incredible stage that went over the Finestre pass and uh, rode away from everybody and sees the Malia Rosa three days from the end. I mean, that's kind of typical of what the Giro can serve up. So there's an interesting dynamic within the Ineos Grenadiers team. I can't see a Froome we can spat, but I, th- I think um, they're both looking in great shape. And for Garant Thomas, I mean, it's I think that his time trial performance was really revelatory. But one thing I would say, I mean, I, I wish they both kind of sound a little bit more excited, especially Gagan Hart. I know he's a serious person and this is a serious business, but I just wish he would lighten up a bit. I mean, why can't he be a bit more like this? Jeremy, you stood here in your corduroys, um, but I'm going to tell you one final time. Teo Gagan Hart. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry, Teo. Sorry about that. So, so we agree then that Ineos do look like the strongest team in the race, but where does this leave Roglic? I mean, he looks in great shape. We saw on Saturday's stage his climbing and his acceleration look really, really um, meaningful and powerful. But his team seems underpowered, and obviously, you know, they had a lot of problems before the start of the Giro. Pete, is he going to rue all the COVID cases that hit the team before the race even started? He might do, yeah. I mean, we shall see. But I think Roglic is, uh, I think he just, I mean, that, that time trial t- today, it looked like at the first um, at the first checkpoint that his, his chance of victory was, was disappearing. He lost 30 seconds or whatever it was to Remco and... Um, I was listening to the French commentary and they were saying oh, it's, it's, Remco's just going to power away now and he's going to make gain a minute or a minute and a half and Roglic will be completely out of touch. And then something happened to Remco, he ran out of juice. Roglic obviously paced it extremely well and didn't lose as much time as they were all expecting. And he showed on uh, on Saturday's stage where he, he gained time on Remco on the, on the sharp climb that, um, just before the finish on stage that Ben Healy won, that he's, he's climbing well. And I think his team will come round. I think he's got the guys there who can, who can 
keep him in position until the start of the third week. That's what he needs to be. That's what they all need to do. I mean, his team isn't as strong as, as Ineos. It's not as strong as the Jumbo team will be at the Tour de France when Jonas Vingegaard goes to defend the yellow jersey. But he's got strong riders there. And I think Roglic is fine. I think he's in really good shape at the moment. Be interesting to see how his form develops as we go into the mountains because of all the main contenders, I think his climbing form looks to be the strongest. Anyway, let's move on. And so while we ponder the strategic scenarios of this year's Giro, one formal winner remains in the shadows. But in the past few days, Nairo Quintana has told the Colombian press he is still optimistic of returning to competition. Listeners will remember that Quintana was stripped of his sixth place at last summer's Tour de France after the presence of the painkiller Tramadol was found in two blood samples from the race. An appeal to the Court of Arbitration of Sport found against Quintana in November, and by then he had already left his team Arkea Samsic. Chris, Quintana is not suspended from racing, and Tramadol is not yet classified as a doping offence. But you understand from the people you've been talking to that Quintana is further away than ever from a return to World Tour racing. Yes, as you say, Jeremy, Quintana recently said in the Colombian press that he still hopes to return to racing, that he is training strongly, he is in good condition, and that with God's blessing, he hopes it will be possible. He added that he is waiting for the moment when that opportunity comes, but that he can't say with certainty when that will be. He is praying and crossing his fingers, it will be soon. The facts are, however, no well tour team seems willing to sign the 33-year-old who who, let's remember, is a former winner of both the Giro and the Vuelta. There are teams with spaces, you know. Teams can sign Quintana, but from the conversations I've been having, no one is even contemplating offering him a place. It's also been reported that he is holding out for a two-year contract, which is seen as fanciful, especially at his age. It's worth reminding people, I think, that Quintana, as you said, is not sanctioned. You know, he still can sign for any cycling team and compete tomorrow, but, but he's viewed as damaged goods. I've been speaking on and off with his lawyer, Andres Charia, for the past few months, and he is adamant that Quintana has been a victim of a miscarriage of justice. In fact, the last time we spoke, maybe four or five weeks ago, he made it very clear to me that this was a, how to say this nicely, an F-up from the UCI, and that there were many more suspicious riders in the peloton than Quintana. But but as it stands, he's not going to be returning to any peloton of note. So when you say he's damaged goods, I mean, as you say, the the rules about tramadol are that it isn't a doping offence, but at the same, I mean, maybe we should explain this a bit more for our listeners because I think there's confusion over the classification of tramadol. For sure, yeah. So it's been banned from the UCI since 2019. I think I'm right in saying, and from from January the first, 2024, it will be, become a banned substance on WADA's list. What it basically means is, with Quintana and his two and and and, and his results being stripped from the tour, is that the UCI wanted to get ahead of WADA because they view it as dangerous for riders to be, you know, to be racing with the presence of a painkiller because it masks other things as well. You know, it, it kind of blurs that that consciousness. So he still can race. You know, he has not got a doping offence. But when you have results stripped, and especially from the world's biggest race, you know, it's not good to have an asterisk against your name. And and, and I think. I've, Teams just don't want to go there anymore, which might be surprising when you consider how talented he is. But, you know, all you, you need to do now is just type in his name on Google and his name offence will come straight up. So, you know, teams do not want to be associated with that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously there's quite a few teams that 
have you know uh, members of staff and members of the uh, management who have been connected with doping in the past or have been subject to past doping bans um, and obviously we can think of all those names um, but but it seems it seems like is he being singled out I mean is that what his lawyer is basically saying that there's some kind of not a witch hunt against him I'm not suggesting that for a minute but uh, that for some for some reason because of is there something more to the story than just the tremolo? It's that's a really good question because I was exchanging a few WhatsApps with his lawyer maybe ten or twelve days ago, and he was still seething. To be totally honest, even though I know this this case has passed six seven months ago, and and he was saying that even though uh, Cass kind of upheld this suspension, there's still no definitive proof that Quintana did take tramadol, but you cannot prove it either way. And I said to him, you know, it seems strange. And it's a little bit suspicious and it's almost like there's something else behind this case. You know, I was kind of probing him to give me an answer. And he said, you know, if there is something else behind this case, you know, I, I don't know of that. But that's what it seems like. So is it a witch hunt? I think, you know, I think his lawyers and his legal team cer- certainly would buy into that. But, yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really strange one. And I think, you know, there's a comparison to be made here with... Miguel Angel Lopez, obviously, you know, fellow Colombian who was released by Astana in December. And obviously he has returned to, to competing now for a Colombian team, you know, and he's been winning, you know, quite a lot of races in North and South America. But, you know, Quintana just, just does not want to sign for a Colombian team. You know, put it simply, he sees it as too much of a downgrade. You know, his Palmares in his class deserves a place among the elite. You know, that is what he thinks, you know, as one close confidant of Quintana said to me, you know, he's too proud and he has too much ego to sign for a Colombian continental team. There is some disquiet between his managerial team and others who are in his orbit at this approach. You know, one said to me, I simply don't understand what his team are doing. And they said that it would be best for Quintana to accept reality and retire. But again, his, his ego probably wouldn't permit that. You know, it was only earlier in the year, I think it was in January or in February, that everyone thought he was going to announce his retirement only for him to turn up at a press conference and say, surprise, I'm still here. <laughs> so kind of definition of a non-event of a press conference, isn't it? If you turn up and say, oh, he's going to, yeah, everyone's having coffee outside, he's going to retire, yeah, and that's, this is it. Yeah. Make a big speech, few tears and stuff. And this is, no, I'm not What are you all here for? I'm not retiring. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I think that was also his way of, of just trying to, to stay in the press and trying to stay relevant, you know, but... But even that comes at a bit of a contradiction because I was speaking with his agent maybe two months ago and she said, you know, there would be soon interview possibilities with Quintana, but nothing has materialised. And since then, you know, she's admitted to me that there is no news, but it's been completely silence from his team. Mm, it's interesting. Pete, Pete, do you think there's some kind of cultural stuff playing into this? Do you think there's a... You know, does he not want to lose face? I mean, in Hispanic culture, that's quite big, isn't it? Not not being humiliated is is there, is there something that he that he's being told not to retire because it would be you know a, a a shabby end to what was once a very lustrous career. I mean, it's it's for a start. I think it's difficult to to. Uh, I mean, although Colombia might be a Hispanic country, I mean Quintana's definitely not Hispanic. He's he's like. Uh, He's from native stock in in Colombia, and I, I'm 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 no no expert in terms of how they review these things, but I mean certainly as a double Grand Tour winner, um, I can see why I wouldn't want to step down to to racing for a Colombian d- domestic team. I mean, 
for Mikel Ancel Lopez, who's three or four years younger, hasn't won hasn't won those those big races. I mean, he's he's been up there in 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 the Grand Tours. It perhaps made more sense to do that to keep himself in the shop window. For Quintana, it really would have been a big step down. I think. I mean, although he would have been fated in 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 uh, I mean celebrated in terms of fated. I mean, in in Colombia and, and other countries where where he'd been able to race people would have been pleased to see him. I think there really wasn't much for him to gain. He needs to be back at the, the top level if he's if he's going to race. And I can honestly see a situation where last last year's tour was the last we we're going to see of him, that, that sixth place finish that was then struck off. I honestly can't see any World Tour team signing him. Maybe somebody on the fringes of the World Tour might, but it's it's, it's dragging on and on. It doesn't look like it's going to happen this year. If it drags into next year, you think, well, he's kind of forgotten by then. I mean, can he come back then? I don't know. I don't see that happening. From a new road bike to a wardrobe refresh, Sigma Sports keeps you moving, whether you're a commuter, racer or social rider. At Sigma Sports, you get the products you want from the brands you love. With fast shipping, easy returns and industry-leading customer service, shop in store or online at sigmasports.com. So... Our final story from a very busy weekend comes from northern Spain where the Izulia women's three-day race came to a close with more dominance from Demi Vollering and the SD Works team. In Sunday's final stage, Vollering followed up her spectacular win at Lagos de Covadonga in the women's welter with another duel with arch-rival and compatriot Annemiek van Vluten on the final climbs, which ultimately ended with Vollering's SD Works teammate Marlon Reusser taking the GC with a lone break into Donostia. Pete, it sometimes feels that these two Dutch riders, Vollering and Van Vluten, are almost having their own private race and uh, whatever happens in the end, kind of ST works, usually win. Do, do you expect this to con- continue throughout the summer? Yeah, I, I do. I think, uh, I mean, Vollering's established herself this year as as the strongest rider in the, in the women's peloton. I mean, she's dominating. I mean, Van Vluten's coming stronger now. She, she won the Vuelta in slightly controversial circumstances obviously we kind of think back to the fact that uh, there were complaints about her Movistar team attacking when Vollering was having a a natural break and uh, seems to be a real a little bit of an edge to that rivalry between Vollering and Van Vluten between those two teams Um, and that's great watching it is great because you're you're drawn to it. You're drawn to that contest, and it's just—it's been really interesting to see it continue at uh, Izulio over the last two or three days. What we saw at the Vuelta, of course, we've uh, we've got the Giro Doni coming up at, in in uh, in June. Then we've got the the Tour coming up at the at the end of July. Um, I expect those two riders to be going hammer and tongs at each other again. They're the they're the two standout stage races in in the peloton. Chris, I also saw that the Life Plus Wahoo team is competing. They they were in Itzulia this this weekend and that uh, Maria Novolodskaya was competing as well. Obviously we we reported on the fact that uh, she's been racing with Life Plus Wahoo despite her connections to the Russian state. Um, and we said we keep tabs on this. So have we heard any more on this story from the team or from the UCI or has there been any any kind of further action? Not that I know of, no. Um, the story has not advanced since we broke the story uh, last Saturday on episode episode one of Radio Cycling. 
It was interesting that she was even racing, to be honest, you know. I was under the impression, having spoken to the team, that she would be pulled from that race. Well, well exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought as well. So when I was looking at the looking at the start list and then I looked at the results and I thought the you know, start list can sometimes change, but then I looked at the results and saw that she'd been racing. I was, hang on a minute, what's 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 happening here? She was actually in the break on Saturday as well on stage two. And I think, you know, I've I've not been in contact much with the team this week, but I think simply, you know, this story has not taken off perhaps as it would have done 14, 15 months ago at the outbreak of the war. So I think the team probably feel like they've they've got away with it a little bit. It's interesting as well because I actually have an interview with Laparte Jens, uh, the president of the UCI, on Tuesday. It's not with regards to this, but I am going to bring this topic up because there are legitimate questions around her continued participation in races. And, you know, maybe she will be able to get neutral status, neutral athlete status, but... When the facts are presented in the way that we did, you know, there are, you really have to question whether she should be competing at all. So to see her racing in a, in a, in a break at one of the biggest races in, in the women's peloton, well, it feels like a bit of a smack in the face. It's about consistency, isn't it? And it's, it's about what, you know, that you think the ethical standards that applied to sport when the war first started, why, why would they not apply now? What, what would have changed? It's exactly that. I think the really easy answer to that is, you know, I think everyone's got a bit of war fatigue now. And, you know, she is not a big name rider. You know, if, if we would, if she was a, a rider who was winning races, you know, this would be a much bigger story. But the fact that she is a, not being harsh, but, you know, kind of a third rate rider on a third tier, or on a second tier team, it's just not cutting through to the general public as much as it would have done in, in March 2022. Which, as you say, you know, it's not consistent. So we'll see. But anyway, um, that's that's a wrap. That's all for now. I'm going to slip into my corduroys, as directed by Teo Gagan Hart. Jeremy, you stood here in your corduroys. Thanks as ever to Pete, Chris and producer Will. We will be back later this week with more news and views from the Giro d'Italia and elsewhere in pro racing. Enjoy your rest day and bye for now. Bye.